HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Salonia. Our next guest is Steve Jones, who has worn many hats in the cheese industry since the 1990s. He has opened and operated five brick-and-mortar cheese businesses. He has presented numerous times at the American Cheese Society Conference and taught countless cheese classes to cheese professionals and in 2019 authored the cheese book Cheese, Beer, Wine, Cider, a field guide to 75 perfect pairings. He now works for Gourmet Imports, a California-based specialty distributor, as their in-house cheese ambassador and educator. Steve, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Right on, man. Well, it's great to have you here. I think the last time you were on was around 2019 with Diana as host when your book was released. So it's been a minute, um, and you've been doing so many things since 2019. So for our friends listening, please tell us what you've been up to. What's going on? Whew, a lot. Uh, since then, I, I closed down Cheese Bar, and I worked uh, about another year beyond that with a Springbrook farm, and I was working with Springbrook while I was still running Cheese Bar, so that was kind of a really perfect transition for me uh, in, the, in the COVID era. I did that for about another year after we closed Cheese Bar, and now I've been with Gourmet Imports for almost two years, and my focus there is education, uh, sales, and procurement, kind of equal, three equal parts. Wow. That's just, those are some three great hats. So, but a cheese bar, I mean, this was a pretty epic place you had. It was, that was open solid 10 years. Right? Yeah, 11, getting year, that right? 11 years, yeah. 11 yeah. years to have a business in this world is like dog years these days. Um, what led to the success? I mean, what do you think kept it kept it humming along? I mean, and, and would you have wished it gone longer? It must have been a conscious decision for you to change gears, I'm going to guess. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I never, ever didn't like going to work. I very much enjoyed working there. It was a, it was a lot of fun for people who didn't know it. It was, I always kind of described it as a really good cheese counter surrounded by a casual bar kind of setting with a 
an appropriate menu. So nothing elaborate, but a lot of cheese centric dishes. And then, you know, some salads and stuff that are a good counterbalance to cheese. Um, so it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was a real vibey place. Uh, lots of neighborhood people, beer and wine by the glass. So it just kind of had a very European feel to it. I, I do miss it uh, quite a bit, but I'm, I'm very happy to be where I am right now. Um, mm-hmm. I, it, it's kind of nice to get to know my wife and kids again more. Oh wow! Can't imagine how how different your schedule must be. And I'm I'm so sorry. I wish I ne- I never got to visit. I never. My first trip to Portland was only uh, last year, and uh, I, I I wish I, I wish I'd seen uh, seen you during in, in your nat- in that natural habitat of yours. So, but but now you're, the focus is so now you're you're focused on more retail channels, product procurement, and. Uh, and some, did you say some food service too? What did you, what we, what, you're at, we with gourmet imports? Uh, we do, we definitely have a food service, sorry, food service focus. Um, we have two Michelin starred chefs on our team who they kind of drive that end of it. We advise wow. them, the we being the cheesemongers, there's three cheesemongers on the team, myself, Alex Brown, and Sarah Dvorak. Um, and so we help them with cheese questions, but they definitely have the food service and we're more focused on independent cheese shops. Right on. Sounds like you got an all-star team there. So between the schedule and uh, the allure of being part of a team like that, is that, is that what led to you saying, Hey, you know what, maybe it's time to, to go, uh, you know, change, change, uh, change roles here. Is that, is that what led to you as a big, I can imagine that was a massive decision. It was great because I had enough time. I, I could, I, I knew, you know, I knew the end was coming. And so I had the time to make a plan and not have to do it overnight. And so I had the luxury of calling up a bunch of my favorite people in the industry and just basically saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make a change. Who do you think I should talk to? And some of these people, I was talking to them, you know, looking for a job. Some of these people, I was talking to them just being like, hey, I need a different perspective. And Gourmet was one of those perspective calls where I called up Steve and Alex. I always enjoyed them. Uh, every time I met them traveling, we always hit it off. You know, we always have had really good times together. And I was just like, you know, guys, who are some other people I might want to talk to? I've talked to these people. And so they gave me some really good perspective. And then, you know, kind of jokingly at the end of the call, Steve Grangine, the owner, is like, wouldn't it be funny if you worked for us? And we both kind of laughed and we hung up. And then uh, about, a, about a week later, you know, we're talking again and it just, it kind of became more and more of like this little shadow in the corner of the room that it's like, maybe this thing is real and maybe it, maybe you could work for us. And so over about a month's period of time, we, we decided that, yeah, I was going to work for them. And so it was a really, really fun way to kind of transition into a totally different company. And I've, I'm having a blast. I'm having the best time I've ever had in cheese, I think. Oh, man, that sounds that's that's so great. I'm so happy to hear that because you've done so many things. But let's let's back way up. I mean, how did you? Uh, you're, you've been in cheese since the '90s. So how did you get into cheese in the first place? You're from the you're from the Midwest, right? Yep, I grew up in Iowa. Uh, my dad was actually a herdsman for Maytag Dairy in the '40s, so kind of cheese in my blood. Um, 
but I, I got a fine art degree in college. And so, of course, I learned how to cook to support myself and cook professionally for years and kind of slowly got tired of the hours, wanted more of a, not nine to five, but not, you know, working until two in the morning and coming home stinking of grease traps and beer. And so I uh, transitioned into, I was managing a deli and they, I got to build the deli from the ground up and they wanted a little focus on gourmet meats and cheeses. And I didn't really know anything. I knew, I knew what I liked, but this was, yeah, the, the mid nineties in the Midwest. And so there wasn't a real like guiding light. I had to figure it out on my own. And so I learned about prosciutto and Parmigiano Reggiano and da 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 and built this little cheese case. And just, I was having a blast while I was making potato salad and, you know, slicing black forest ham and so on and so well, forth. Where, where was this place? Is it still in business? I, I, no, unfortunately it's not. It was called Dino city market and it was in Edwardsville, which is um, Southern Illinois across from St. Louis. My wife okay. was doing her graduate work there, uh, but it was a blast. And a guy in St. Louis saw my case and he's like, hey, I really like your aesthetic. I like what you're doing. Would you like to come over and maybe do this in St. Louis for me? And he goes, but I have a focus. I want it all to be American artisan and farmstead. And I was like, wow. whoa, that's Visionary crazy. Time. It was. Yeah. And he was so far ahead of the curve. John Nash was his name at the wine merchant. Uh -huh. And so I went over and talked to him a couple times and saw his space and I – I was like, I built a couple, you know, delis at this point. So I knew, I was like, ah, oh, the plumbing's where it needs to be. We can make this thing work. And we put it together and it was a blast. And he really was like, I want, I want this at least 50% American cheese. And so I picked up, you know, Steve Jenkins, the cheese primer and started going to all his, you know, the flagship American producers and just started there and called all of them called Judy Shad, called Mary Keene, you know, everyone in that book called Igvella, and just started buying right. these cheese, to mainly direct, because at that point they didn't really have much distribution. And uh -huh. distribution into the Midwest at that point was almost non-existent. Um, eventually, you know, I got hooked up with Zercher and stuff, and that's where, you know, things really started to kick off and get better. But it was a really, really fun, fun project to to have to learn so much about these American producers. And it's still where my heart lies today. It's, you know, that's, as you know, that's really my biggest passion is small American producers. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, you, uh, I guess you had some, uh, some, some jobs in between and at other cheese counters and other shops. And you uh, then eventually wound up in, in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, I guess. How did, how did you wind up in Portland, Oregon? Well, the funny thing was when I graduated college, I kind of, I went to Alaska and then I trickled down and I ended yeah. up in Oregon, okay. but then I ended up moving back to the Midwest with my wife for her to finish her graduate work. And then we came back to Portland because I got a job at Provista, which uh, uh, at that point was a small regional uh, distributor importer, kind yeah. of very similar at that point to what Gourmet Imports is now. So a pretty small uh -huh. team, very focused. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, that, at that point I'd been, I'd done an internship with Niels Jardari. So, you know, my European chops were getting stronger, 
But the cool thing was when I came on with Provista, even then they were like, okay, we got to grow our American selection. So it's just been a kind of central vein throughout my entire career. Yeah. So you opened before Cheese Bar, though, you opened a place called Steve's Cheese. Is that right? Yep. So, so Steve's Cheese. What's, what was going on at Steve's Cheese? And what, and, and what was the theme? And how did you know that was just going to be your baby? Like, what, what led to that? Well, I mean, I'd always wanted my own shop. And I, I was doing everything on a, on a shoestring. That's kind of been... And this is 2005, by the way, right? Yeah. Did I have that yep. right? Right around there? Yep. yep. Okay. And uh, so I was like, well, I don't have enough money to open a full-blown fancy cheese shop. So I started looking around Portland and there were these guys who had just opened a wine store and they had this big space. And it was kind of like when I went in the wine merchant all those years earlier and I walked back in this corner and I was like, Hey, all the plumbing's where it needs to be. So we made this agreement that I would build out this little cheese shop. It was about 300 square feet and that was Steve's cheese. And that was, went on for five years and that's where we really, you know, cut our teeth in Portland and became, you know, a force in cheese in Portland. So that set you up for your, so you closed Steve Cheese and that's then, that then set you up for cheese, for cheese bar, for you to open yeah. a cheese bar. Yeah. And cheese bar was more kind of a returning to my, my roots of my experience in the kitchen and wanting to wanting to have some interesting bites. And I'd been, you know, traveling to Europe enough times that I'd had these great experiences of, you know, sitting around with wine or beer and a bunch of cheese and interesting food. And I just really wanted that vibe. And so that cheese bar became, you know, Steve's cheese, but surrounded basically by a little restaurant. So you had you had a proper cheese bar where people can buy retail. I'm gonna guess like you had a, yeah. you had your cheese counter, right? I remember seeing I've seen pictures about 250 cheeses. 250 cheeses. That is not a small collection. Yeah, and yeah. and I'm gonna guess also based on the book you've written, you must have also along the way uh, procured a lot of wine, beer, and ciders at at at, at a cheese bar as well, right? Yep. Yeah. The the hope was that people would come in and use it in a number of different ways. You know, you could come in and you could just shop like a cheese shop. But my goal was that you would come in and either buy some cheese and then sit at the bar and have a beer and, you know, chat for a minute and take off or come in and really live the dream and get a beer and then shop for cheese. Um, and the neighborhood, you know, basically they, I had my ideas and the neighborhood had their ideas and you have to bend towards, you know, your audience so I was going to be stubbornly, you know, beer centric with wine as a secondary thought. And we became very quickly wine centric with beer as not a secondary thought, but it was, it was second to wine. And then right. at about that same time, cider was really taken off in, in Oregon. And mm. I personally feel cider is of all three of those beverages the most easy to pair with cheese. So we yeah, always find it's, it's hard to mess up with when you're exactly. picking a cider and a cheese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you're in a, so you're in a wine country. I mean, Oregon's got some prolific wine, grape producing, uh, wine producing regions. So, you, I guess maybe that spilled over into like, hey, what's going on here? We need to have the wine full blown here. We're in, uh, we're in Portland. We're in Oregon. Um, yeah, 
and people just have that mindset of, you know, wine and cheese. And, wine and, and cheese, it's great. Right. Uh-huh. I, yeah. I think the, with wine and cheese, I always say, I get my highest highs with wine and cheese. Like when you get a really great pairing, it can really be very singular, but they're very hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Where with beer and cheese, you get those higher level pairings more often. And then mm-hmm. cider is just like, you know, I don't, I don't see quite as big a peaks, but I see a really consistent, like easy to pair beverage. So yeah, that's kind of why I mean, that's three. like having training wheels. I, I could always pick, yeah, I yeah. feel like I can confidently pick a cider and a cheese and it's uh, usually going to be a safe bet. Uh, exactly. I think so many styles of cheese that you can almost throw at, at many ciders. Exactly. Um, so what's the lesson in, in, in opening and owning this type of cheese business, something that can help. Like say there's uh, our listeners out there are considering opening up a cheese shop or a cheese centric restaurant or this hybrid type of idea. What, what would be your advice be to those uh, listening? Whew. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that I tell get people, a good lease, most, like to just get, your, yeah. get a good lease, <laughs> yeah. get a good location. Is that still like the best, uh, you know, I mean, it, I mean, we need to re- keep repeating that if that's it. You yeah. Know? I mean, location, like, Location is definitely key, and we'll speak to that later. Um, but I would say the other thing that is that I see as a problem for most people opening shops is being underfunded. Um, it's I always tell people, borrow all the money you think you need and then borrow 25% more because you just really – it's it's hard to be overfunded, and it's very hard to work out of that deficit you know, if you, if you really want to have something that you're super passionate about and you're always working at a deficit, it's tough because it's hard to, mm. it's hard to keep that passion high while you're right. doing debt control, you know? So, yeah. so that would be the number one thing. Yeah. Discouraging. Yeah. yeah. So if you can borrow more money, borrow a little more money, you know? Um, yeah. And then, you know, th- thinking about, you know, profit channels, every, I don't really know hardly any place in America that has standalone cheese shops anymore. that are successful. The margin's terrible. You know, the margin on cheese, if you were to tell a restaurateur, you have to operate on the cheese margin, they would laugh in your face. You know, it's, you can't, you can't, you can't do it. So you have to have other avenues and those other avenues can be as simple as cheese boards where you make a better margin and you're maintaining the the cheese while you're doing it. So you're never shrinking cheese because you're always making cuts. And we had cheese bar had like seven cheese boards. So I was able to keep all my English cheese fresh because I had a Neil's Yard dairy board. I had a blue board, I had a stinky board. I had a monger's choice board. So with all these boards, we could maintain the entire case and we were never facing cheeses just to face cheeses. We were facing right. cheeses to put them on cheese boards and charge more money at the same time. And so that that you know that avenue of making extra money somehow is is a huge component for sure. Yeah, and the and the and the theme that you had in the marketing also sounds like just just really really clicking. But like that, what you just said, though, really resonates for me. I grew up growing up in restaurants. Yeah, the, the cheese margin. Forget it. We, we'd have a rack of lamb on the menu. <laughs> I'm a chef. I, I grew up in kitchen. We had a rack of lamb on the menu. We would, we would get worried because like, wow, this rack of lamb, it's a, it's a 37% food cost. We're like, whoa, I'm getting yeah. near 40. Watch out. Meanwhile, we better, better sell more calf's liver tonight. And the calf's liver was like 11%. Yeah. Like, like 11% food. I'm talking the whole plate of food, 11%, 12%, you know? 
yeah. and it was one of the cheaper. You had to have something like that on the menu in order to, to but like, I mean, restaurants, cheese shops, they're, they're both very different, but the one thing is defined by it is you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work the money. You gotta work the margins and then you have to have your labor has to be in the right spot too, which is a trick. But, uh, I think a little more friendly of a mix. And I think cheese shops are a little, maybe, I don't know. These days I'm still, I'm still hearing and seeing many challenges with, with the labor force, but, um, I'm hoping that it's still easier than restaurants. Like, I don't know. Um, but having these other, these these other categories that pop up, you know, I'm hoping helping or driving some more profit, but did you, how was your labor situation? Did you, something you struggled with or was it, did you, uh, you know, you had such a great place to be able to attract and keep people and well, we, we were very lucky. We had a lot of longevity. I had a few people with me for over five years. Um, so that, that, that was great. Cause as you know, training is, is an expensive endeavor and takes a long time. Um, but yeah, labor is the thing I don't, I don't miss. I'm still friends with most of my old staff, which is great, but I sure don't, you know, I don't miss having to come in and take shifts when somebody called out sick, uh, the labor thing, I, I see it with a lot of my clients today where they just, they struggle. But the good news is, you know, most of these people keep their good employees. And, and so we're getting better and better mongers who have been around doing it long enough to really know the craft instead of all these baby mongers, you know, where we're starting mm-hmm. to see more and more deep professionals out there. I hope that's happening because I think there's an ebb and flow to the to generational shedding, you know, if you will, um, where, uh, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of veterans leave and then there's a lot of new and then the new, it's like any, like, like in a sports team, you know, and all the, the stars that have been on the team for many years, the high water mark, and then they retire or, or go on to other things. And then you have a lot of newer, uh, members of the team. And then, and it takes a while for that, for that market, if you will, to mature, I think that's what's happening. I think we're at a midpoint uh, there in that sense, or hopefully getting on to the other side of that where we're going to catch some momentum in watch um, shops and stores um, uh, struggle less. But also coming off this pandemic, um, you know, where there's like sometimes I- I've heard some uh, stories about there being an unreal, unrealistic expectation of what sales and margin should be because 2020 and 2021 were still bananas, uh, you know, retail sales because restaurants were still not really open. And then once now restaurants are fully open, there's like this lag of like, well, why are, you know, like this comparison, even if it's done unconsciously, it's kind of, uh, you know, there's like a struggle, but I, I but I think with the smaller independent businesses, I, I, my sense it's happening less that way, but that's just my hot take. I, I don't know. I'm not everywhere. What do you, what do you think about that? I have talked to quite a few small owners who are saying that they've just learned to ignore 20 and 21 and look at 19 and 22. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you just have to take those two years out because it skews all your numbers so radically that, you know, so I I think that that your insight's correct. I mean, it is, it it, it is what you're saying. It is. Those were unrealistic numbers. Yeah, and, and to base your logic on it is it, it, and during the most illogical of times. Like, like, why would you do that? Like, just take it out of the report. Like, you know, like be cognizant of it, but like maybe your decision making should, yeah, be based on this year in 2019 or some blend of that. Yeah. Um, but uh, you had a place called Achizu. Um, that was open for four or five years. 
What's yeah. uh, was that? Was that a sushi style approach? What do I have that right? What yeah, was that I was. Like? I was actually eating sushi one night, and I, I, I always loved going out for sushi because it's it's it feels like such an adventure. You can just pick all these little bites, and you're not married mm-hmm. to something gigantic, and you know it's just such a fun way to eat. And I was like popping a piece of mackerel in my mouth, and I was like, hold on, this could be cheese. I mean, and how fun would it be for somebody to have a menu with 30 cheeses that they could buy, you know, an ounce of each, you know, it could be one, it could be five, it could be 10. Um, Or they could just go omakase and be like, I want to spend $75. And we would build them this gigantic board that was like, if you did omakase with a sushi chef. And uh, it it was super fun. It was a very small space. It was only about a 450 square feet. Um, so it was intentionally meant to feel like a, a sushi bar, you know, very intimate, very tight. Um, you were within a couple feet of the mongers at all times. Um, it was it was kind of an exhausting place to work because you were so very much, if you weren't a show person, it wasn't the right place uh. for you. You know, uh, right? Sure. Because yeah, you were literally, yeah. you were at arm's length most of the night with the people you were serving. Um, sure. Wow. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was um, unfortunately going back to being underfunded. I opened two places within ten days of each other because I also did a concept inside of a brewery where we were providing cheese boards in simple food, and those two were supposed to open about six months apart. But how construction works is when people work, you you pay them, and they when they get done, they're done. And so these things drifted closer and closer and closer together until they were about 10 days apart. And so we wow. opened Whoa. back to back. And so I was over, underfunded. I was sleeping about three hours a night. You know, so I really never had either the money or the energy to put at Chizu that I should have. So I, uh-huh. I personally think that it's – its downfall were those things and it's okay. and its location. We were downtown and there was a ton of construction. And so it was very, very hard to even see us, to find us and get in. It was kind of like working a maze in an industrial area. Um, wow. So it was tricky. It was a great run and people, when they got in the door, just lost their minds. But it was, uh, I think it was maybe ahead of itself timing wise, uh-huh. or maybe Portland wasn't the city for it. I think it might've been better in a bigger metropolitan area personally. It's got a lot of, lot of foot traffic and maybe mm-hmm. people coming in and out. And it, was there a, a fourth place that you had open at, at, at where maybe these four places are all open at the same time? Did you have a Los Angeles place? Well, I helped open a place in LA called Wheelhouse, which is now Acousta. Okay. Um, okay. So that oh, cool. was just, that was just um, something that I, I do a fair amount of consulting and he wanted some really deep consulting. And so I kind of agreed to a, a bit of a partnership in exchange for pay. Um, okay. And so, so that was a, that was a fun gig. And it was, I really, I kind of fell in love with LA during the process. So it's, it's fun for me to be back in LA and that's where I really got to know Alex Brown better. And so, yeah, it's kind of a little it, precursor to what I had coming. It's funny how that all works. Um, so hang out a second. Let's put a pin in this. We're just going to need to take a short break, and I want to dig more into what's going on in your current day role. 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here chatting with author and also 2011 CMI champion, cheese ambassador and educator, Steve Jones from Gourmet Imports here on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Steve, okay, so you're now on the other side of the counter. You're now focused on other kinds of work. So I guess we talked a little bit about what kind of led you to kind of flip the script. So what do you, what's your vision right now? Like, what do you see in front of you? Um, what I'm loving is with almost 20 years of independent operator background, I really, I feel like I can share a lot of tricks and tips and help my customers succeed um, I think it's easier for me to gain their trust because I have sold these products. I can tell them, you know, there's certain products that I can just say, every time we had that in our case, I had to tell the mongers not to sell it because it would have been always sold or sell it last, you know, sell two other cheeses and then go to that. Um, so I kind of feel like those insider tips are really, they're very helpful for me gaining trust and, hopefully helpful for my customers, you know, succeeding and selling more cheese and, you know, occasionally hopefully making their lives a little bit easier in the process. Cause you've seen, you've seen it all. I'm going to guess at the counter. I mean, I'm going to guess between running it as, um, you know, restaurant cheese counter, um, you know, it, you know, creative concepts. You've, you've made cheese counters in, in, in the, in the deli, uh, in uh, Southern Illinois, Dino's City Market, a place that didn't, it didn't exist. You created, you know, you, you were, you were uh, brought into another uh, wine store where they wanted to have an American farmstead focus. So now you're with a cheese distributor. I mean, cheese distributors, I mean, talk about a loaded topic. I mean, it's that, such a, when I, I used to work for cheese distributors. It's, it's a really tough job. Um, and depending on the cheese distributor, it could go more smoothly. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a rockier road, but no doubt it's not easy. I mean, they're, they're, they're critical in getting cheeses to the counter, right? They're charged with playing the role of being effective. They need to be efficient in getting fresh product from the warehouse to the countless counters and kitchens across the land on time. Um, some of them are doing their own importing from other countries, most or all of them also order from suppliers in the USA with consolidation points in the USA. They offer helpful knowledge to products. They store and care for cheese. They strive to keep proper good inventory. They try not to run out of stock. They try to keep velocity. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but this is all true, right? <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they run are. and route their own vehicles. They hire and train drivers. They have to maintain vehicles. They have to fuel the vehicles. They have to. This is if it doesn't snow. Right? This <laughs> yeah. is if this is on a perfectly sunny, dry pavement day, right? Not an easy thing. And then you have like driver shortages, Uber, Uber Eats biting into getting a drivers. I mean, so you we could do you and I, people, you know, on this side with the sales and the, all the cheese people listening, we could be doing everything perfectly well. Meanwhile, if you don't have a driver, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You got to get it there. So, hundred um, percent, not easy. So, like, I feel like I have to say that out loud because. I want our audience to understand and appreciate what cheese distribution goes through and does. But what what would be your take? Because you've really been on both sides. And what, what is it about cheese distribution that you would want the audience to understand and appreciate? Yeah, I mean, 
there's a couple things. One would be that I think mainly at like ACS quite often when you're sitting in on, on sessions, people will kind of bag on cheese distribution. I'm sure you've heard this yourself, Joe. And, and mm-hmm. it, it's, it is, you know, some of it's true. You know, everyone, everyone thinks the distributor is getting rich, which if they understood mm. the margin, they would be like, that's definitely not the case. Um, but it, it, they're not the enemy and a, and a good distributor is, is actually essential for a good cheesemaker to, to grow and maintain business. So it's a part of the relationship that really, if it's done right, it can be fantastic. And people who do it right, I think, really make these these people's lives better because it, it's all about communication. It's about asking the right questions. Are you doing okay? Is this sustainable? Do you have a secession plan? You know, the hard questions and things that are not something that you just say in passing, things you really, you've got to mean it. Um, And I really, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be working with people who, who these things are not just words that are said, they're actions that we live by. And, you know, if a cheesemaker says, you know, they need help, we're, we're actually trying to help them. And most, most distributors are very good about doing this. You know, there's, there's a handful that are not as good as others, but, but most of them really care. I mean, it's, it all goes back to the producer. And if the producer is not healthy and sustainable, none of us are going to thrive. So I love that relationship piece of it. And with any relationship, there's always, you know, hard communication. So sometimes you're giving them negative feedback and you're saying, hey, this new packaging you're trying out is it's horrible. By week number six, it's 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 making the cheese compost in the package where, you know, we were getting eight weeks in the other package. Um, or you can just say, hey, whomever's making the cheese, it's way salt, saltier than it used to be. Um, you know, can we change packaging for shipping? When you build a pallet, can you, can you build a chimney in the middle so the cheese doesn't compost while it's stacked on that pallet? All these things are like super, super essential to, to having this relationship work. And so I'm, I'm right. a huge believer in, in that relationship. Um, and then also inversely, I think as the person receiving the cheese, it's very easy to be like, you know, oh, this cheese is slightly damaged. I'm just going to send it back. I'm trying always to teach people that the whole thing, we're all in this together takes the whole damn village, you know, from A to Z. So if you're the retailer and you get this piece of cheese that's slightly damaged, it's got a little crack, a little surface issue, instead of just, you know, huffily sending it back, that might be sending it back to a dead end. That might be the end of that cheese and it can never become any money for anybody. So it's just profit lost. It's time lost, energy lost, you know, all these things that are in the negative category, where if you can solve that problem in that final step as the retailer and be like, hey, I'm happy to take this, but can you give me 25% off? Can you, you know, can I record my shrinkage and you can cover that? Do you want to give me buy one, get one free? Just to meet someone part way and have that communication 
is key. And also as a retailer, that communication of what they're seeing inside of the box coming back to the distributor and back to the producer is essential because they're the last people touching that cheese before it's on someone's table. So I think it all comes back to basically communication and some of the communication is tough, but it's worth the effort. Yeah. You hope that we could all get to a point where we're more solution oriented, partner mindset, win-win. But yeah, sometimes we get the call where it's just, you know, someone may, usually it's someone that's a little newer, I think, to the business where they're really uncomfortable about seeing like a crack. And so uh, they'll, they'll, they could, they'll, they have a higher chance of rejecting it versus a, a veteran, uh, you know, who's not intimidated. And yeah, they'll have that conversation. Uh, I'll work with this. Just give me a credit for whatever, a little bit off or, you know, and, and we'll save this cheese. Um, that's such a critical point uh, because uh, th- this, and it's, and then, like you said, conversations need to be had. They need to, they need to take place between uh, like someone like yourself and, and the cheese shop where there's a trust and a rapport. And I think to me that, I don't know what you think, like what does a, a good cheese distributor bring of value to the cheese channel? I think it's exactly that, that like you're an extension you're, of them. You're a partner. You're there yeah. to help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, we use the, where you, you know. yeah, we use the P word in full. I mean, it's, it's a partnership and our, our people that we work with that we're closest to are, are, are true partners. And, you know, we, we, like I said, we need them to be successful. We need them to be happy and healthy and, you know, we need their animals to be in a good place. So, yeah, it's it, it's a key component, and so my I guess my biggest takeaway with dis- distribution is distributors are not bad guys. You know, let them yeah. let them be a good, let them be a good guy and and help them help them be a good guy. You know, totally, totally. And and this is all very basic stuff, but it needs to be repeated. There's not not only because there's there's uh, new listeners joining uh, and 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 hearing. Uh, the show, but like, why not repeat this kind of stuff, especially coming from someone like yourself, who's owned five, five, uh, you know, real brick and mortar businesses in real life over a span of, you know, 10 plus years and who has worked at counters. And, uh, you know, like this is, you know, it, it coming from also your opinion, uh, and you've been on both sides. Um, and so it's it just, it's just not an easy thing. So, uh, yeah, we're all in this together and, and it is all about the cheese and the producer, uh, trying to, trying to, you know, take their hard work and, and, and carry it through. Like you said, A to Z, quite literally A to Z, isn't it? It's quite literally that many steps. Yeah. Yeah. Unreal. Exactly. Um, so when you wear, so you, you mentioned you're into product procurement when you wear the product procurement hat right now in your new role. Uh, or maybe in, even in your in your former role, what is your default setting for choosing you know a product or a cheese? Is it um, you know is it simply by taste and marketability? Is it um, based on a region or country uh, that you feel like there's a hole for um, in in your program? Uh, is something thematic? What's steering the ship most when you're in like a product meeting? Yeah, I mean it's a few things. I would say nowadays. We fill as many gaps as we can domestically. Um, mm-hmm. We do that for a couple of reasons. One being our small farmers need our help. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we really feel 
it's a necessary part of what we do. So we've grown our domestic program to almost 50% of our cheese at this point. Um, so when a new category comes open, if we need a geo-rinded goat for say, we're going to look in America first and try to try to fill that stateside instead of going for that perfect croton from the Loire Valley that's like mm-hmm. chasing the dragon sometimes. It's like, oh, we've got yeah. someone in Wisconsin who's doing a great one. Let's let's get that one. And so yeah. that's a big component. Um, we, we're very conscious of not crowding categories because if we if we have too many alpine cheeses, it just becomes a war of the alpine cheeses. So we need sure. to say, hey, we we have 10 to 12 SKUs here that we feel like we can do well. We don't need 30 SKUs, you know. So it's, it's trying to pick within that category. And like right now, we're a little heavy on cloth-bound cheddar. Not a bad place to be this time of year. But I was like thinking earlier today, I'm like, we're a little heavy on cloth-bound cheddar. We should probably, you know, call the herd a bit or definitely not add another one at this point. Um, yeah. So we're looking for it's tempting, crowded. right? Cause there's, there's yeah. no shortage of, of tasty cloth bound cheddars. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah. tempting to just get all, get all of them if you want all of them. Right. Yeah. And you can justify them all being delicious maybe. So deliciousness isn't not, it's not nearly enough. You have, I guess it's like taking a position and then wanting to follow through. Not crowd. That's a big point to make, not crowding. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's another one that I feel like, our, our leader is is very good at, at saying that clearly to us, and it's hard. We get excited, uh, yeah. you know. It's as cheesemongers, you want. I mean, that's why I had two hundred and fifty cheeses because I wanted, I wanted it all. You know, if it's amazing, yeah. I wanted in my case. But sometimes you just have to say, I already have amazing here. I got to find amazing over here. You know. Um, yeah. But we are looking for, you know, another thing we're constantly looking for is best in category. So we're just mm-hmm. like, okay, when you find that perfect Manchego, you found best in category. You know, you don't need five Manchegos at that point. You have your best in yeah. category. And then you might have maybe a culinary Manchego. That's enough. You don't need five. Yeah. You know, right. um, you're looking at logistics. You're looking, like you said, where are pallets being built already? You know, there's a cheese that I'm interested in that's in Pennsylvania, but I don't have a pallet really close by. So I have to figure out how would I get that to that next pallet? And we're also thinking very consciously about our environmental footprint. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to send a a box with five cheeses in it. We want to send a pallet with 1500 pounds of cheese. It's a much more efficient way to move product. So, um, yeah, yeah. And then marketability and price, you know. Sure, all the playing into this massive algorithm that's, um, you know, and thank goodness there are some cheese consolidation points for this reason, but it doesn't cover every single cheese in all the land. But this this gets back to, there's a lot, there are probably a lot of outliers for American cheese. And uh, you've, I mean, you've, well, speaking of American cheese, you've been on so many uh, judging panels for for the American Cheese Society conference. You've, uh, you've, you've, you've presented numerous times. Um, so what's, um, what's through that lens, what, uh, considering the cheese and and the work, what advice would you give to like newer professionals looking to excel and make the most of their time and talents? Is it to pair up European experience and, 
an American experience? Is it, uh, you know, what, what should they, what should they be engaging and spending their time doing if they want to be, uh, if they're rather new to the cheese business and want to become a member of, of one of these organizations? Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many things you can and should do, you know, probably the first thing would be to get out to farms, you know, at 25 years in, I'm still like, I love visiting farms. I love to see everyone's take on how you best build a make room, how you best build an aging room, you know, how you're caring for your animals. It's, it's very invigorating. And I think it means a lot to the farmers when you go out and visit them. So that's, I think a, the number one thing you should do. Um, getting involved with any of these organizations, be it, you know, Counterculture, Barnyard Collective, um, DZTA, the Daphne Zeppos uh, Teaching Endowment. Um, you know, these people are all doing really, really good work. Uh, so it doesn't, all, it doesn't have to be the American Cheese Society. Um, it can be adjacent. And, and, you know, whatever is in your region and you can get to is the first and foremost thing. You know, just get there and get involved and volunteer. Um, I always tell people, Go to these conferences, even if you can't afford to, you know, pay for the sessions. Go and meet other people who are passionate. Volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Touch the cheese. You know, get to know your peers. Um, I, I'm I'm currently very involved in um, committee work at at the American Cheese Society, and we're really working on diversity and bringing more diverse people into our organization and up through the ranks of the organization. And so I'm, I'm always begging the people to get involved, volunteer, you know, be a steward at judging, volunteer at, at the, at the conference coming up in Buffalo is going to be a blast. Um, but also get on, get on a committee and do some committee work. It's a lot of work, but it's insanely rewarding. And our, our goal now is to work people from, membership into committee and then on to board work. So it's a very logical path where you get to see all the things that go on, you know, that guide this organization. And, you know, we're really trying to take this thing that's got a, a perception of old boy club and make it be something that's really and truly for all the members to represent every one of them. So right on this, this sounds like a, a really good, upward mobility opportunity here. You said Absolutely. member committee and yeah. board, like that's a path. That's a realistic path right there with, with some true upward mobility kind of right in front of uh, whoever might get involved there. Absolutely. Um, that's really, that's really great the way you frame that. Um, so for those listening, write that down and, and, and look up those things that Steve just, just mentioned um, so what, what topics would, would, would also help someone new in cheese or, or for those that are in mid, mid range? I mean, for me, I mean, I, I love to hear everybody's perspective. I'm, I feel like we're forever the student over here. Um, yeah. what topics, um, do you think, do you feel would help to dive into? Like, is it something as simple as receiving and cheese care? Is it sales at the counter? I mean, this is the sales guy talking. So I, I w- I'm always wondering about you know, how much control someone has at the counter, but it, you know, sometimes it's limited to just being burdened with so much day, you know, minute to minute work and, or their personality. It might not be that type, but like, uh, to me, there's a lot of selling that can be done at the counter to really drive numbers. Or is it about how to hire and train? What, what's, 
you know, something as simple as like, you know, you don't want to store a wheel of Conte or Greer on its side, like, you know, like space is an issue, but like, how far do you go, you know, with when space is an issue, you know, like you don't abuse, you don't want to, you want to be careful that you're not abusing cheese to make space. Yeah. I mean, all very valid points and, and good. I mean, any of those would be a good session. Like, like that you hadn't even thought about that one, Joe, I might steal that from you. The idea of, I've seen inside of so many people's coolers where, you know, they're working in a two door region and they've got yeah. 700 pounds of cheese crammed in there and it's all sitting butt to butt against each other and, you know, suffocating. Mm. Uh, mm. So yeah, I, I, that's, I love that idea. Um, I personally think like right now, for myself, I'm really diving into food safety more and more, um, mm. best practices. I think, you know, with the new FDA outlines we have coming at us in the next couple of years, we all need to bone up and be ahead of that curve and not be surprised by it. And I think if we start now, it's a very doable thing. And it's also just, you know, food safety, that there's nothing wrong with being really good at that. So um, that's that's what I'm kind of focusing on. But I think every single topic you mentioned, I love sessions where people, you know, I've always wanted to do a session where you um, sell cheese using improv. You know, the first, oh, rule, wow. the first rule of improv is yes and. And so when somebody comes in and says, I want a smoked Gouda, you say, man, are you going to love this Idiazabal? You know, instead of saying, I don't have a smoked Gouda, you're yes and you're, you're going to yes instead of no. You know, I love so that. I think there's all yeah. these different things that we all can consider, you know, and ACS, the sessions are always fun. And, you know, if you go, I always recommend to people a couple of things. Go to one scientific out of your comfort zone session, something that you're like, I'm probably not going to understand this. Go and listen hard and try to learn. Go to something really fun and stupid you know, pairing cheese with candy, whatever, but just something that might be fun and out of your box in a different direction. Then go to something you're interested in and maybe most importantly, skip a session and go out and have a beer with somebody you've never met before and, you know, make a new cheese friend because that's maybe going to change your life even further. And we all know cheese friends are the best friends. So mm -hmm. not a hard thing to do there. Indeed. Um, so what is your wish? Maybe that maybe you mentioned it, but what, what would be in a few words, what is your wish for the cheese community that you want to see more of just a few words? Like what would it be? I really want to see more collaboration, uh, both in the sense of like distributors saying to American producers, Hey, instead of me going and looking for this Reblochon replacement in the Savoie, you know, maybe we're looking here in the States and somebody who might have the possibility of them producing that. So collaboration in that sense, collaboration between, you know, I love the idea of we've got a bunch of small to medium size uh, distributors and we kind of, kind of share a lot of information between each other because we don't all want to cover the entire United States. So we'd rather mm -hmm. just say, Hey, I've got this guy in Chicago. I've got this guy out in Vermont. You know, I love the idea of, of, I think people are very attracted to inclusiveness and not saying negative things about each other, but saying positive things about each other. I think, you know, it, it makes us all better at what we do. And it's, I think 
the industry really needs it. I mean, we're we're on hard times in the American cheese industry right now. And so I yeah. think anything we can do positive is is in the plus category. And we just got to keep putting those check marks on that side of the line. And that's great. Thank you for that. Um, what would you want to see, you know, in a few, in, in a few words, what would you want to see less of? Uh, flavored cheese. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, say no more. I mean, there's yeah. a time and a place and, you know, I always yeah, had a couple yeah. flavored cheeses in my case, but, uh, yeah, I mean, judging at ACS, there's, there's some days where it's just such a slog no. of flavored cheese. You're just like, Oh my God. Please, no more. Some of them are done really well. I guess they oh, call yeah. it cheese with inclusions. I've mm-hmm. heard that term before. Mm-hmm. Some of them are done really well. Some of them are yeah. done, you know, maybe because it was the cheese is just, there's nothing there to begin with. And it's just all about the whatever flavors in there. Yeah. Um, well, and also the public, they buy them. So, you know, you can't ignore yeah, that. It sure either. is a, so sure is a uh, massive category of sales out there that comprises that. It's a, absolutely. It's a big one. But like you said, maybe a little less. I don't know. But it doesn't seem to be going in that direction. It yeah. seems to be more. Um, and then, and then um, separately, you offer uh, you know some some support work at sometimes if uh, as a as a freelance. It's a separate thing. Uh, you, you know when you're just wearing this the Steve Jones uh, 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 hat, the, the amazing cheese ambassador hat guy. Um, so if someone wants to seek your expertise, are they best to just like message you on Instagram? Yeah, yeah that's great. That's easy enough. I'm a bit of a caveman. So if I don't get back to you in a day or two, do it again. Because you got so much original thought and so much wisdom and, you know, it seems like you're open to, to sharing it. And yeah. So if you can, I mean, the idea is I always believe in trying to lead with, with wanting to contribute and help people. You are clearly, clearly doing that. Um, you're, you're super earnest and, Inimitable, as I would say, uh, that's a new word I learned. Which, <laughs> you need to look it up. It's, it's a good one. It's a good one. It fits, fits you well, Steve. Fits mm. you well. So I want to I want to say thank you for joining me today, cutting the curve to talk about what's going on with you and your world. And uh, please do come back sometime. Catch yeah, up. it's a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Always good to chat, man. Awesome, awesome. All right, everyone. You can catch Steve on Instagram at CheeseBarPDX. You can message him there too. And you can follow us on Instagram at Cutting the Curd and follow Heritage Radio Network at Heritage underscore radio and follow me at StingChef. Please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating. It will mean a lot and also really help us broaden our audience. Okay, thanks again, everyone. And if you love someone, send them cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.